Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, where we are tracking the digital revolution that's taking place and the profound impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the world, how businesses are responding to the changes in our lifestyles across things we do at work, at home, the combination of work at home, how omni-channels sort of become pervasive everywhere, and how businesses have had to flip themselves upside down and inside out in some cases to adapt to this new reality. We're delighted as always to have back as one of our monthly guests, Wayne Saden, who is an advisor to CEOs and boards of directors on how to weave modern digital strategy into their overall business strategy. Wayne, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure to see you. And it's always a pleasure to be here, Bob. Great, Wayne, uh, you are somebody who gets to advise CEOs and boards of directors. You've been a CTO and a CDO and a CIO. Um, what are you seeing these days, right? I mean, there, there, there seems to be reasons for a, a sense of optimism about the business world. You know, early in 2020, the business was exploding. We actually did a column about that in yeah. probably January or February, which just so shows how bad people can be at predicting the future. Uh, and then I went through a very slow period and then business didn't necessarily pick up or drop off, but it roller coastered. Clients would come on and then they would shut down and they would slow down and speed up and get nervous about different things. Over the last 30 days, 45 days, what I've started to see is a tremendous pickup in my personal pipeline, in invitations to speak, in opportunities to bid on projects, um, in nonprofits, in profit making. I was invited onto the advisory board of a startup. So, uh, and the, the business to me has changed. Now I'm just a microcosm, but everything I see says that we're starting to turn the corner. Yeah, I know the COVID is up, deaths are down. I don't wanna talk about biology here, but I wanna talk about optimism. And what I think we're seeing is the CEOs and the boards and the leaders of companies are starting to say, what's gonna happen when this ends? Because I think we can see whether it's a medical treatment or a vaccine or a combination, there's going to be an end and then the business is going to take back off. And so the kind of things I'm being asked to talk about with companies and on panels and so on is how quickly can we now catch up with where we should have been or what should we do if business explodes or as one of your other columnists talks about, as we reshore and change the supply chain and bring things back into our national boundary, how is that going to change the way I have to run my business? If I'm going from a warehouse in China, I put it on a boat and it comes here in three months, and all of a sudden I want to put 20 distribution centers around the United States and contract with five new manufacturers and have flexible capacity so that if COVID hits region A, I can move to region B. How does that change my supply chain, my logistics, my technology? And so I'm starting to see questions like that get asked. And so my point to executives is twofold. I think we're turning the corner in, in optimism. I think it's real. I think business is picking up. And the second one is, if you don't act now, you will be left behind. Yeah, Wayne, I, I think that, that that's a great summation. And uh, I, I think we're seeing signs of that around you know, and we've got these, uh, these disparities, right? Um, I haven't been on an airplane in seven months and I used to spend a great deal of my time, like as many people do on airplanes or a hotel 
or a rental car. So some of these that have been devastated, but I think some of those, um, those, those industries are, are hanging in. But some of these others, and Wayne, I'm sorry if I mentioned this to you in a previous discussion, but a good friend of mine uh, runs a plumbing supply company. And he said that among his customers is a guy who builds swimming pools. And the, the swimming pool builder said he's telling people now it'll be two years before for a new customer it's a two-year wait and he said some people have said to him look i'll pay a little extra move me up i said no i'm charging you a real high rate and uh, two years is the best i can do so um how do you know exactly as you said how do companies plan for this how do they get the mindset right how do they think about a reconfigured supply chain new work from home and wayne how about what microsoft did there with telling it's about 160,000 employees, you have the permanent right now to work from home. Do you think that's something we'll see more of? Absolutely. I think you're seeing the big tech companies are starting to adopt it because a lot of their workers can work from anywhere. They're knowledge workers. If you're coding, if you're debugging, if you're talking to clients, you can do that from your home. You can do that. I take a lot of meetings these days, believe it or not, in my car. Mm -hmm. I bought a thing that attaches to the steering wheel when I'm not driving and clips my phone. And so I can get the video in my phone for Zoom or Teams without having to hold it in my hand for an hour meeting. And I sit in front of a Starbucks because I don't want to go in, but I use their Wi-Fi. And now I use AT&T's 5G on my new Note, and I can have a very good meeting from my car. And so what I do can be done, like what you do can be done anywhere. So I think the big tech companies are going to change. And then I was writing yesterday to somebody, as the big tech companies figure out they can tap Galveston, Texas, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, rural Maine or Vermont for talent, what's going to happen? The company that said, I'm in Galveston, nobody's going to hire my people away, they don't want to move, or I'm in rural Maine, are going to find that they're in the same talent market as Salesforce and Microsoft and, and Zoom. And so what's going to have to happen is the perks that used to be Silicon Valley, dense big cities, they're not going to be gourmet coffee. They're going to be better Wi-Fi. They're going to be a 5G connection. They're going to be a big monitor. And I think the legacy companies are going to have to uh, uh, follow the lead of the tech companies because all of a sudden the market becomes global, which is terrific for workers. If you're employed and you can do your work from anywhere, you're going to see a boom because all of a sudden you're going to be attractive to companies in Milan, Italy, uh, companies in Manhattan, and they're not going to care where you live. And they could be a plumbing company. Um, if you're the person turning the wrench, that's different. But there are some things that might change that to some extent in intermediate time. But I think you're going to find a, a democratization of labor, a flattening of the market so that everybody competes with everybody. So Wayne, is there a, a word play on, you know, does the gig economy become the gigabit uh, economy? <laughs> well, I think you're talking about now that we've all heard about 5G, right? If you're yeah. a board member, maybe you're not a tech savvy person. You don't follow what's going on in the tech press. But now that Apple announced 5G in their phones, everybody in the world heard that term. And I want to talk a minute about what that yeah. means. So I've been talking about 5G for about two years now. And so if you're, I'm gonna boil this down for the CEO, for the, CF, for the CFO, for the board member. There are three flavors of 5G, call them slow, medium, and really fast. It doesn't matter. 
over time will go from slow to medium to really fast. What you need to know is that the bandwidth, the pipe that passes data is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's interesting. I can download an entire Netflix movie in seconds, the Encyclopedia Britannica, those who remember what that is, in seconds. But I will tell you as a business executive, uh, bandwidth is not the only thing to be concerned with. Even more important for a lot of what you need in your business is something called latency. The amount of time it takes for the signal to go from the cloud to your device and back again. And why does that matter? We think of the of bandwidth as water, it goes through a pipe. Well, it's a little different. Water goes through the pipe, so does data. But every now and then, your phone says to the cloud, got it, or didn't get it, send it again. If you ever watched your video pixelate, you know, all the little blocky things, that's the two ends trying to figure out how to put, connect the signal. If I can turn the signal around faster, that means something I see in a camera at the end of a car, at the end of a, a bulldozer, at the end of an assembly line can be sent back to the cloud and a decision made and the answer sent back before the car drives off the cliff, before the machine tool runs through the casting and ruins it, before the heart surgery thing goes into your lung instead of your heart. So it opens the, opens the door to very new applications in what's called hard real time. Hard real time means if you don't get an answer in time, bad stuff happens. So latency and bandwidth are both improving and that opens the door to, you were teasing about the gigabit economy, but let's give an example of that. I've got techs that are very senior, they're older. They may have comorbidities to COVID, they don't wanna go out. But how do you work from home when your job is on an oil platform or your job is fixing heavy machines? Well, what you can do is you can equip the junior tech who has less experience but more resistance to illness and more willingness to climb up on stuff with a set of augmented reality goggles and a camera. So all of a sudden, when they go up and look at the bulldozer or the extruder or the catalytic cracker, what they're seeing through their eyes gets transmitted back to the senior tech sitting safely at home. And the senior tech then might say, turn your head and look over there, or might say, show me a gauge, or might take telemetry right off the machine the internet of things and say to the junior tech, I know what you read the manual, but turn that bolt over there. And so all of a sudden we can take that person and take their experience and their skill and their knowledge and leverage them all around the world using the power of bandwidth and latency. So it may be the gigabit economy when I can have the junior plumber or the junior pool builder taking advice from the senior pool builder who may live in Italy or may live in India and able to direct people so they can do highly, more highly skilled work without serving that long apprenticeship. Wayne, you know, it's fascinating when you, you talk about that uh, remarkable application and the remarkable potential, I think, of augmented reality and the, the video devices and so forth that you described. Um, what is that line, right, about that we tend to uh, far overestimate uh, important new technologies impact in the short term be underestimated in the long term and i think it's funny these couple terms that come up now artificial intelligence i mean there's nothing more real today than the way that artificial intelligence has changed the world and is 
changing so many business processes and business opportunities, now augmented reality, how quickly is it going to stop being augmented and it's just going to become reality? You know, this, this is how more and more people deal with the world. It's uh, th this pace of change for, and, and the way it's reflected in language is really interesting. But I think for a lot of the folks that you deal with, who maybe aren't as immersed in the technology, they got to understand these aren't sci-fi terms. Uh, these aren't things that are going to be here in, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. They are here. And they're making an impact. Well, if you think about this remote support concept, this augmented reality connecting two techs, if you go buy a modern ERP system, that is built in. If you go to Microsoft, if you go to Salesforce, if you go to SAP, this is a module you can buy today. What's limited us is that I can't reliably send video from all my job sites, from all my ships, from everywhere I wanna be. It's about connecting the field edge computing, as it's sometimes called, back to the core, the cloud, the data center, whatever I've got. If you want to send video, if you want to send high bandwidth telemetry, you're running a surgical robot. I've got to get a lot of data back and I've got to get it back quickly. And if there's an error, I've got to resend it before, as I say, before the machine tool runs off and digs into the casting or before I operate on the wrong part of your heart. So we wind up with the need for this technology and we're, we're cutting edge on some of it, but the rest of it, the AR, augmented reality, is here and available today in a lot of the areas we work in. I do want to say, when you talk about artificial intelligence, I use the term, the initials AI, to stand for something a little different. It's not today so much artificial. We don't send the robot off by itself. What AI is good for is finding patterns in your data. It can look through and say, this reminds me of this. When they're doing the COVID stuff, what do they run every drug through it and say, which drugs might affect that site in that cell? So they made a list for the scientists, for the doctors to go look at. Might've taken them years to sort through the data, but the AI fed the right data can do it in minutes or hours. So it's good for finding patterns. The other thing it's good for um, is remembering stuff. So again, it knows everything you've ever seen, knows everything you've ever done, and where you might forget that you had a ticket on that same topic two years ago, the AI and the computer underneath it doesn't forget. So think of AI in 2020 as augmented intelligence. It makes your people appear smarter. It helps them see things and remember things they couldn't do. So it's a combination, just like AR, is a combination, augmented reality is a combination of what's being seen in the computer with a human being to manipulate it. The same thing with robots. Today, robots are not off wandering the streets by themselves. They are helping lift an object that you can't lift. They're an exoskeleton that you put on your employee. So when they lift packages or when they have to reach over their head, they're not physically impaired. So think of the technology as the human machine amalgam, the hybrid. And so when we use those terms, AI, AR, and so on, think of augmented as the key word today. And to your point, in the long term, there'll be a lot more artificial and a lot fewer opportunities for some of us, but that's a ways off. Well, Wayne, thanks for that, Dot. I just want to uh, now jump in with a word from BMC, our sponsor. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, 
where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. So Wayne, uh, you know, some remarkable prospects there to figure. We've got what appears to be, you know, resurgent global economy. Uh, not out of the woods yet, of course, with uh, the pandemic, but uh, there, there does seem to be some progress on that. And as people begin to get more confidence to be able to come outside, there's, their interest goes up, the B2C companies are impacted, the B2B companies. So all the way up there through the chain. And for a lot of these companies looking to jump into this new digital future, they've got a lot of big plans. But one of the issues that you've been so effective in talking about, and it goes back to that article that you had written, and I think you've done a great service really raising this issue of technical debt. So how does this tie in with these opportunities that I think a lot of companies would like to pursue right now? Sure. Let's talk about that for a bit. As we get ready at the board level, at the C-suite level to move ahead, we need a new ERP. We need a new customer engagement platform. We need a new supply chain tool. What the CIO or CDO or CTO often comes back and says is, boy, that'll take a long time. Or even though I can build you this fancy new thing in the front, I got to connect it to all that stuff in the back. So I'm going to sum it up for the executives. When you put in your technology 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you stopped maintaining it. IT gets swept under the rug in a lot of companies. And so my example is always, if I went to the board and said, I need half a billion dollars for a new refinery or a new warehouse, and they said, how much would it cost to maintain it over its life? And you said, nothing, I'll cover it out of my existing budget. They'd throw you out of the room <laughs> because they would know that's a silly statement. But I see it time and again. We're going to put in a new ERP or a new EHR in healthcare or whatever, and the CIO is forced into that corner or paints themselves into that corner of saying, don't worry, over the years, all that deferral of maintenance, whether you wrote your own programs and you're not documenting and maintaining them, or you bought software and you're not maintaining it, either not paying for it, not paying Oracle or Salesforce or whoever the, for the maintenance, or you're just paying for the maintenance and not applying the patches and fixes and upgrades, you're doing the company a disservice. And so if you're a board member, if you're a C-suite member that isn't the technology person, definitely ask your tech people, how much tech debt are we carrying? This is an undocumented off balance sheet liability. Look, I'm not a CPA, I'm not an accountant, but I've worked around GAP and IFRS for years. You can't put it on the books, unfortunately. But if I was looking at two companies as investments and one had 20 year old software that was undocumented with 20 years of patches running unsupported operating systems on hardware that's falling apart. And I'll stop and say, I had a client once, big company, that when I needed more hardware, they came to me and said, sorry, eBay doesn't carry that anymore. <laughs> this was the core routers running a 10,000 person company. I went, what do you mean you're buying this stuff on eBay? Well, we can't afford new. And so we went to Cisco. We went to Cisco and the brand new stuff was 20% more than they were paying on eBay and 17 times faster. But they ignored it because they had, as I say, a state-of-the-art 20-year-old architecture. So if you've got two investments, if you are an investor looking to invest, 
if you're doing an M&A and looking to evaluate a couple of targets, which would you rather have? The one with this off-balance sheet liability that gets in your way, this millstone around your neck, or somebody that had been keeping up with the tech. Not necessarily cutting edge, not building science fiction, but just investing in keeping the stuff they had running well. They document the fixes, they put in the new releases. And I'll say this to you as an executive, if you are paying Oracle or Salesforce or Microsoft or hardware vendors for the maintenance, 10,000 upgrades. I'm not, the number may be 20,000. I, I follow Microsoft very closely for a couple of clients and they put out a thousand pages a year of upgrade notes, just three or four per page, a thousand pages a year worth of upgrades in their core ERP. If you don't put those in, you're not getting the value of what you paid for. You bought a system that 20 years ago did A, now it does A plus, 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 and you're still down here. So you've got to be, and your IT people have got to be empowered to keep that investment that you made evergreen. And so I think that's where it comes down to. It's not about technical stuff and cool gadgets. It's about risk. The risk that it'll be obsolete. The risk that the hackers will penetrate it because you're not keeping up with the hackers. But more importantly, it's the risk that you're not gonna be able to move strategically. The risk that when you say, my competitor just did that, I need to do that too. And IT comes back and says, well, I gotta put new hardware in, we gotta move out of the data center, we gotta put in a disaster, we gotta, give me two years. That is not a good answer. And you as a board member or CEO or CFO, you're the culprit by not letting, not holding them accountable for keep the stuff running current. So I'm, I'm beseeching CFOs particularly who say, well, justify your, your annual maintenance. You're not using the features, why are you paying for it? Pay for the stuff you bought, keep it up to date to mitigate the risk and to provide what investment bankers call optionality. It is even more important now as the rate of change speeds up and a lot of companies have kind of spent the last, what, eight months not doing anything, investigate your tech stack, look for technical debt, look for the weak spots, look for the opportunities. You don't have to invest all at once, but you have to have a plan and it's not just an IT plan, it's gotta be informed by where the business is going. And so whether that's fix the on-prem stuff, where these days, obviously, a lot of technical debt is fixed by moving into the cloud. And so we can bring up a whole conversation of what is a cloud and what do you get moving from old on-prem to modern cloud. Yeah, and Wayne, you know, you, you I think appropriately, not so much pointed the finger at, but you, you indicated very strongly here that the boards of directors have to take this on as part of their responsibility. They can't say, oh, well, this, this is, you know, somebody else should think about this. But a big issue that you've brought up, you know, repeatedly in this subject is the need for boards to have a QTE as part of what they do here. Do you have any idea or could you guess at, you know, the how far that idea has penetrated? Is it one out of a hundred companies now have a QTE on the board, or maybe it's one in 10? Well, if you talk about QTE, let's define the term, first of all, spend a minute for those that aren't aware of this acronym. When Sarbanes-Oxley was passed, it mandated what's known as a QFE, a qualified financial expert had to be on every public board. They realized after Enron and WorldCom that some boards 
couldn't read a financial statement. Shocking as that made sound to a non-board member, non-CFO, it wasn't that uncommon. And so they said every board's got to have at least one expert, demonstrated expert in financials. I call that the Full Employment Act for retired big four partners, because <laughs> that's who got hired. And so everybody put the head of the audit committee, made him a QFE and said, we're done. And in 2016, Russell Reynolds, the big executive search firm, wrote an article called The Rise of the QTE in the Boardroom. And their argument was, in the ensuing 16 years since Sarbanes-Oxley, technology literacy was as important as financial literacy was back then. And what a lot of boards did up to then, even now, was they would put the CFO of a hardware company on their board. So they take, somebody makes widgets that happen to be technical, and they put the CFO on the board. Now we have a techie. I love CFOs. I've worked for CFOs, worked with CFOs, but that's not the same thing as somebody that's lived through a disaster planning exercise, penetration testing, cloud decisions, all the things that IT executives do. Just because you work for a hardware company doesn't make you cognizant of the technical implications. So the other thing they were doing was hiring a digital director which was typically a millennial. And let's get a 25 year old who uses their phone better than we do. And they can teach us what young people are doing for digitization. Now, if you wanna build a theme park, Disney, uh, you wanna build uh, communications, social media, you need a digital director. But Russell Reynolds argued that a QTE, a qualified technology expert, was somebody that had lived through the risks and opportunities of technology. And so the answer to your question, if you talk purely as the experienced hand in IT, the answer is very, very few. I haven't ever done a study, but nothing I've seen indicates it's more than a tiny fraction of companies. Financial services is really good at that because they've realized that information, I'm quoting Walter Riston, the Citicorp architect, information about money is as valuable as money itself. He said that around 1970 and banks have embraced that idea. So you'll find a lot of ex-CIOs or uh, Air Force Cyber Command generals on their board. In other industries, manufacturing, logistics, supply chain, healthcare, almost never. Because techie, technology is that thing in the corner. And, and I'll be blunt, most C-suite executives are a little afraid of technology. And I have a, I have a theory about that. When they started their career in their 20s, their first management job, they learned about personnel, what we used to call HR. They learned about purchasing, what we used to call supply chain. They learned about selling. We still call it selling and, and marketing. And when they learned about IT, it was DP, data processing. And it was a guy like me wearing a white coat, pushing a cart with green bar paper. And I dumped the monthly payroll report and the monthly inventory report. And that's technology to the CEO and the board member because that's what they were hands-on with as a young manager. And now it's so outstripped that, advanced more than HR and supply chain and others. And so I think a lot of them feel uncomfortable. I've got to make a decision. But I'll say this to board members, and, and I will say this as a certified QTE and an NACD board governance fellow and a cybersecurity certified director. There's a thing called the duty of care as a director there are several duties you must carry out in order to be um, free from lawsuit, uh, free from being found negligent. And that is called the duty of care. You must invest enough energy and time and effort and have enough knowledge 
to care and make good decisions about the company you're on the board of. 20 years ago, we said not having financial was a violation of the duty of care. And I'll say this, hopefully not to plaintiff's attorneys, but the duty of care at some point is going to require a director, somebody on the board to have that IT experience and IT knowledge. And so the problem is we've got a whole bunch of people that don't know technology, don't understand what it can do for them other than cyber. And they're afraid that techies are going to be too geeky and they're afraid of not knowing enough. It's a vicious circle. We got to fix it. And the way to fix it is for people like you to be talking about it with your contacts and the pundits to be talking about it with theirs and for us professionals to be talking about it within our circle. But it is absolutely vital in understanding at the company governance level, strategic level, just what technology risks there are, what technology can do to hurt you, but more importantly, the opportunities. Um, if, you've, if you're implementing an old version of SAP in 2020, shame on you. And shame on the CIO for letting you do it, but shame on you for trying to do it. Now, SAP has modern tools, put them in. Cloud SaaS products, put them in. Understand why they matter. And that's not the half hour you give the CIO four times a year to come in and talk about the state of IT. It's understanding every decision on products cultures, competitors, markets, uh, M&A opportunities in light of the strategic opportunity of technology. So I think it's vital. Of course, I'm biased. This is what I do for a living. But I think all the stuff we talk about doesn't work right unless the board has an inkling of what you can do with this. Yeah, yeah. Wayne, I think, you know, you're, you're spot on. And I know that this has been a subject you've talked about before. One of the reasons that you know, you and I and you in particular bring this up periodically is it is so vital and it's still not being addressed as broadly or as rigorously as a lot of companies think. So, you know, we opened up this episode as you were talking about, you feel like there's a vibrancy and some things coming back and moving forward. And there are going to be some companies that are going to have the right outlook and attitude and say, we're ready to go. We're going to make this work. We've got these big plans. And somebody's going to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, the, the crap we have here or the stuff that uh, it's just so out of line with what you're going to try to do. That's impossible. It's, and it's going to take X number of months or quarters, no matter how aggressively you approach this, to fix that. So it is not just a fact that there's a little bit of a ticking time bomb that's going to cost somebody some money to fix that and get up to date. You run the bigger risk that you outlined before, which is your company is not going to have the capability to move and adapt into this new future, this new digital future, this new set of expectations that customers have. So you'll wish it was just a financial problem. You know, how do we borrow the money to pay for that? It's going to be an opportunity problem and a relevance problem and a credibility problem. And it, there's going to be some brutal, uh, some brutal discoveries that companies make on that. So the technical debt and the QTE thing that Wayne, I think you have been preeminent in trying to bring that up. I hope that there will be, you know, more and more people who will listen because this is a, this can be a deadly trap that it, it, people have to address. I couldn't have said it better, Bob. That's exactly right. It's everybody worries about cyber risk because that's in the press. And yes, cyber risk can take your company down. I don't want to minimize it, but that's not the only IT risk. Again, if you fail doing an ERP implementation 
or don't have the proper disaster plan, you know, hurricanes, earthquakes, snowstorms, whatever, you can take the company down. But to your point, that's a black swan event kind of risk. Much more vital is the ability to compete and outcompete and, and adapt. The pandemic is changing the world faster than any of us know how to deal with. You know, you talked about the plumbing industry, the real estate industry. I live in a resort community on the beach and house prices here are up 20%, 25% because people don't want to live in downtown Houston. They want to live where they can walk on the beach. And because they're working from home, who cares? And so the number of home remodelings going on here is dramatically up. On the other hand, we had three hurricanes this summer. So everybody's uh, bolstering their defenses here. So storm shutters and sandbag things and raising everything up higher. There's industries we didn't know we'd need that are all of a sudden booming. The bicycle supply chain in the world is completely sold out. It sold out in March and maybe sold out till next summer. I went to a bike store, I own a couple of bikes. And the bike store said to me, we might not see bikes until August of next year because the supply chains got so bollocked up. And so who would have guessed? On the one hand, the gym industry is cratering, but on the other hand, everybody's biking. Everybody's swimming when they can swim in an ocean or in a lake. So we're changing the world. And if you are in the gym industry and you've got to pivot to doing my yoga studio became a Zoom studio. They had to redo the whole place to do videos. So they found cameras, they learned how to work them, they do the classes on Zoom. And as far as I know, they're doing better than they were doing when they could fit 20 people in a room. Now they can have 50 people. So if you can pivot quickly enough, you can turn your business into home delivery. You can turn your business into an allied industry. The bars in Texas all started serving food because restaurants could open and bars couldn't. Now, all of a sudden, they have new restaurants. All the restaurants are closing, except that the bars are becoming restaurants. So you got to be able to pivot. If you didn't know how to do home delivery well, you might have gone under. If you could adapt digitally, maybe you're paying a high price to one of these services. A couple of restaurants here put their own delivery services in. So they'll keep the margin within their own business, which required them to build a digital capability in front of their ma and pa restaurant. And some of them did it by finding a person here in, in my little town that could build them an e-commerce site, you know, in weeks, probably for thousands of dollars, not hundreds of thousands. Would it hold up if you were at Domino's Pizza or McDonald's? No. But if you've got two restaurants in a little town, it's a terrific thing. So it's about thinking about it and being able to execute on those thoughts. Whether you're the Mon Pa restaurant or the yoga studio down the street from me, or whether you're a multinational corporation. And so as boards, uh, board members of a multi multinational, you gotta be as nimble as the owner of the little Italian restaurant or the yoga studio is, and be able to use your big investment in tech and big investment in process and big investment in people to actually move the business forward quickly, more quickly than you imagined you would have to. When your business plan had a three to five year cycle, and you could project your own retirement trajectory. The business is going to go up this, this way and I'm going to retire here. Cool. All of a sudden, there's a new plan. And next year, there's going to be another new plan. And the year after that, there's going to be another new plan. And if you're not ready to jump whatever way you got to jump, you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Wayne, great stuff as always. You know, really, really interesting. Your perspectives, the the hard-earned experience you're putting into this, and I think that sort of call to action for people. You're not you're not saying that you know people have to do stuff that's impossible. It's just hard work, thoughtful work, looking at things differently, but being prepared for the future. And I, I it seems to me, Wayne, looking at you over your right shoulder there, you are prepared for a, a bubbly future. What do you, what is that a is that it's a, a 1997 Cristal, Louis Roeder or Cristal. I replaced my red wine with a celebratory bottle. When I get one of the deals closed, the bottle gets open. So when you see it not there, you'll know I closed the deal locally. All right. And if, if, if at our next episode or a couple episodes from now, that bottle's still there, I, I'll, I'll change the subject. I'll avoid it. <laughs> I'll change the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Wayne. Well, Wayne Saden, thank you. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. You've got fantastic ideas and driving high value to the the folks that want to listen and build a better future. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk. And, And as I say, every time we do this, I look forward to interaction with people seeing this on LinkedIn, with people seeing this on YouTube, on your site. I've actually started to have some interactions. You don't have to like it. I just want you to react to it. So please, if you have comments or questions or, or brickbats to throw at me, I'm all ears. I want to hear it. Very good, Wayne. Thanks a million. And folks, thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We will check back again with Wayne next month to see if that bottle's still there. And in the meantime, we'll have some other episodes coming up. I hope you'll stay with us and stay well. Good to see you.